You got the Christmas spirit? They do at Richmond. We've had a great day here. It's so great. I want to say hi to my mom who always watches online, who loves my beard. And I also want to say hi to everybody at the Ramsey unit. Man, I know that the Christmas season is very difficult for you and your family. And we just want to let you know that we understand a little bit about that. And we're praying for you as well as all those folks online. There are people online. I know Sue Dinges is watching online this morning. And so I know people from really everywhere. I mean, Germany, France, uh, Midland, Odessa, you know, far away foreign lands. You know, anyway, so anyway, we're so glad you're there at Missouri City. I heard you had a big day there at Missouri City with the drum line and everything that was there. So congratulations. If you're new at Missouri City, go by and see Chad. He'd love to say hi. And then we have so many great things happening at our West End campus. If you're new there, Abe would buy you a coffee, a lifetime of coffee. I mean, I don't know what he'll do, but go to INC Abe. He'd love to help you as, as well. Well, listen, here's the perfect time. Here's my pitch. I don't do this a lot, but Christmas Eve is the perfect time to invite somebody who doesn't go to church. Your neighbor, friends, family, co-workers, people who don't believe in God, people who don't like preachers, which is a lot of people that don't like preachers, uh, love Christmas Eve. So invite them. It's a candlelight service, so you should do it. We have like seven of those services here at Richmond. We have different services on all the campuses. It's a really an amazing time. Here's the pitch. It's a 50-minute service, and uh, the preacher only preaches like 10 minutes. And the reason is because there's kids in the room, and he's got ADD real bad, and he can't keep a train of thought, and everybody's here for that candle holding anyway, so let's get to it. So it's quick, it's easy, but it's meaningful. So invite somebody. They're waiting for your invitation today to one of our services. So pick a service that you're going to go to and then uh, invite somebody to do it. Just send an email or a text and say, hey, we're going to church on this day. You should come with us. Okay. That's my pitch. There's no commission check, by the way. (laughs) Y'all okay? (laughs) Because I've had a lot of coffee. I had an Americano that was so strong today. It's just, (laughs) my heart's about to explode. (laughs) It's great. Anyway, hey, we're talking about miracles. Excuse me, swallowed my spit the wrong way. So, <laughs> so bad. So bad. we're only family here, right? I know Missouri City and Weston are going. What's going on up there? Let's get to this miracle thing. Listen, the reason we're studying about miracles is because we don't believe them much. You know why? Because they're not predictable, and we can't conjure them up. But we believe, if you believe in God, not everybody here does, but if you believe in God, you believe in a supernatural God that's above nature which is, means he's a miracle worker. So the question is, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe? I mean, not, not the concept of miracles, but miracles in your life and the supernatural happenings. You know, is everything just natural, explained by science? If it's not explained, it's because we haven't discovered the explanation yet. Or is there something going on that's really bigger in a different dimension than the dimension that we're trapped in? We're trapped in a dimension of time and space, right? But if you believe in God, and again not everybody does, then you have to understand that God's above time and space, and he busts through in our time and space at times with the supernatural happening. Here's the definition of miracle that we've been looking at. <clears throat> Excuse me. A surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific laws, and that is therefore considered to be a work of a divine agency. 
Now, again, I've said this before and over time because, you know, TV preachers have given this all a bad name, is that you can conjure up a miracle, that somehow if you could unlock the key or the combination to God's supernatural wand working in your area, like the reason God doesn't work a miracle is because you're at fault and you don't do something. I don't believe that's theologically accurate, and I don't think that God's waiting up for you to say the secret word, Right? I think God is working a plan. And what I want you to see today is this idea of God working a miracle and working supernaturally even when we don't see it. Even the disciples had a very difficult time believing in miracles. And they witnessed Jesus walking on the water and healing people and all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that we said last week is you need to feel God's presence and God's provision if you're going to have a relevant relationship with God and not relegate God to some sort of big man in the sky kind of distant deal. But that's how we, come on, that's how we feel at times. We, we feel because this world's broken and things don't work the way they're supposed to work and we, get, we have tragic events that occur and surprising events and we wonder, at least I wonder, you got it all together, I can see it in your face. <laughs> but I wonder, where's God? You know, where's God in all this? Why would God let this happen? Why, why is this happening? Where's God in this? Is God passive? Is he some sort of a passive observer walking, you know, watching all the events of human history and shaking his head going, oh, that's tragic. Is God like far away that sometimes he wakes up from his slumber and interjects his uh, life or his hand or his miracle working power into our life? Or, or is there something else miraculous going on behind the scenes that we don't perceive so we don't believe is there? I think that's the Christmas story, quite frankly. And what we're going to see today is the three characters are in the story of Christmas out of Matthew chapter 2. And you're going to be able to identify with two of them for sure. God's the third one. That's the punchline, right? But the two of them, and you're going to say, oh, this is how it works. And what I want you to see is God working in the background. Let's get to it. Are you still here? <laughs> I don't believe you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, there's our first character. And you're going to be able to identify with King Herod in some ways. So be open to this because he's the villain of the story. And so you're the villain at some level. Listen, here's how it works. King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? That's a phrase, King of the Jews. And then they report, we saw his star. And you're going to see this is a recurring idea. The star, the sign, the signal. We saw his star when it rose and he came to, when we came to worship him. The word worship means worth-ship. In other words, we're going, to, we're going to acknowledge, not discover or create, but we're going to acknowledge worth. They heard of this Messiah. These are non-Jewish people, these, these Messiah, I mean, these uh, Magi. And so they've heard of this promised Savior of the world coming, and they wanted to see for themselves, and they were going to ascribe worth as they discovered the worth. That's what worship really is. It's us discovering God's worth and ascribing to it, acknowledging it, recognizing God's worth. Okay, that's a side sermon. I'm not going to charge you for that. Anyway, when King Herod, okay, here's the difference. When King Herod had heard this, he was what? What's that word? Ready? He was what? Disturbed. Disturbed. He was troubled. He panicked. He freaked out. Now remember, we're all identifying right now with King Herod, the villain of the story. And all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the pe 
people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah. He understood this theological ideal of a savior of the world, the Messiah. He understood even though he wasn't Jewish, he was appointed by the Roman government to be the king over the, this Jewish area, especially J Jerusalem. Uh, he understood the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, they replied, for this is what was a prophet was written 700 years ago. Here's what was written about where the Messiah would be born. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Matthew's quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 700 years before Jesus was born. Now God has a gracious habit of telling us years before to be looking for this. And so when Jesus shows up to the Jewish people who were very studious, understood the signs. And being born in Bethlehem was surely a sign because Bethlehem was a small city. And basically the question was, what good could come out of Bethlehem? I mean, it was six miles south of Jerusalem. It had an ancestral connection with King David, okay? So there was a connection there. But it was a small, no-name no town. Like, what good? Like, the, the God of the universe is going to appear to man in Bethlehem. It'd be like us saying, something big's going to happen in Bay City, you know? <laughs> Y'all from Bay City, sorry. I was going to say Needville, but so many people now are coming from Needville. I <laughs> didn't want to offend anybody, you know, from Needville. You know, we have hundreds of people actually coming from Needville. Sorry. But Hearn, how about Hearn? Does that offend anybody? Hearn. How about, here's what a lot of people would say. Could anything ever good come out of College Station? Really? I mean, that's, oh, oh, oh. I've stepped on somebody here. Let's just close in prayer and go eat tamales. That's it. That's the idea. You know, it's like, he's from where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's what. So I just want to see. So here's what it goes on. Let me, let me finish some of this. Then Herod called Magi secretly. So now a plot unfolds, okay? A plot unfolds. And found out from them the exact time the star, there's that star again, right? The star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, here's what, here's what you do, fellas. Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I, too, may go and worship him, which was a lie. Now, the reason we can identify with the villain of the story, Herod, is because oftentimes we have the same behavior. Now, what I want you to see is Herod was trying to hold on to his kingship. He was trying to hold on to his lifestyle. He was paranoid. He was anxious. And he was fighting to keep what he had. He loved the comfort zone that he had established. And he was trying to keep it going. We, we are like that in so many, many ways. Now, you have to remember the first century. The first century, there was no middle class. Uh, the first century was made up of mostly poor people and a few rich people. And the poor people got up every day and tried to figure out how to eat or how to put a roof over their head or how to be clothed or how to make a few dollars or, or something. And that's how it works. And they were very much victimized. They were at the bottom rung of society. It's 
So much different than what we experience today, but you have to figure that out because it puts Herod into a great context that we can understand. In light of all the poverty, Herod was very wealthy. He had all the power. He stole from the people. And he wanted to maintain this. So you can imagine you can imagine the anxiety in his life when somebody would say, hey, a new king was being born. Now, they didn't understand king of what, but they thought, oh, my God, there's a king that's been appointed, and he's a baby, and he's going to come and grow up and be a prince and then take over from me. Well, oh, no, King Herod says, I'm going to keep up that. So what we can identify is this idea is that prevent defenses don't work. And that's what he was trying to do is he wasn't trying to win. He was just trying not to lose. It'd be like you showing up at work and your position is a certain position at your job and all of a sudden somebody new is announced, hey, we got this new person and they're going to start this week and they have the same title and responsibilities as you. And you can see the writing on the wall and you get anxious about that, nervous. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be displaced. You try to hang on because you need that job and that insurance. And you need that. You try to hang on. That's the ideal on a much grander scale. And he was trying to hold on to his power in such a great way that he's willing to kill for it. We find that later in Matthew chapter 2, which is your homework, by the way, to read the whole chapter. He was willing to kill for it. In other words, Herod was not moving forward. He was trying to preserve what he had. And as you get older in life, like me, that's what you try to do. Uh, winning's not as important as not losing. You know what a prevent defense is, right? I'm not a big football deal, but I do remember watching the Houston Oilers. Y'all remember that little team? The Houston Oilers, when they were playing the Buffalo Bills, y'all remember that? I had a bunch of seminary students over. Google this. It's on YouTube. It's amazing. Okay, I had a bunch of seminary friends over, and we were watching that game. And we were up by like, I should have I figured this out, but we were up like 30 points at halftime. And I looked at my friends. I had a prophetic moment. And I said, the Oilers are going to lose this game. And sure enough, they did. And still today, it's one of the largest comebacks in NFL history. And the reason they lost is because they weren't trying to win anymore. They were trying not to lose. And when we do that, we lose something in our, in our way we do life. And we get anxious. And so, man, I don't know what's going on with you. What are you trying to hang on to? You're not moving forward, but you're trying to hang on to because you have anxiety about loss. Man, that is the wrong posture to have. And we see in the Magi something different. Look at verse 9. And after the Magi had heard the king, okay, the king called him and said, listen, go find the deal. Tell us where it is. Tell us where he is, and we'll come worship him. They went on their way. And the star, there's that star again, right? The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, there it is again. They were overjoyed because they'd been traveling. They were from Iraq, right? Uh, they were from Babylon, and they were right. And they traveled for weeks, probably months on foot to get there. They were not Jewish, but they had heard. They were probably Persian priests of some kind, astrologers. And, the, and they, wanted to, they wanted to figure this out for themselves. And so they came, and they were overjoyed. And here's the familiar part of the story. They, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures to them and presented him with gifts, gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Now, okay, here's a quiz. How many wise men were there? 
Wrong. That was a total trick question. I totally sucked you in there. That's because you have a nativity scene on your piano that has three wise men. Now, if you want to act smart about your friends, you'll trick them with that question. You say, no, there wasn't. There was three gifts. There was not three men. There was probably 20, 24 men. They traveled in packs to come down there. So the gifts represented something powerful. One was gold, which represents royalty. Uh, only the rich had gold. So we know something about these Persian priests, these astrologers. They were wealthy, and they brought gold to say, we recognize you as somebody royal divine, in, in terms of being a king of some kind. The second one was frankincense, right? And frankincense, if you don't know about it, it represented divinity. It was sort of incense that was burned during worship services. You could think of it that way. It's not exactly like that, but I'm making stuff up. So it was like that, and it represented, we recognize you. Again, they're ascribing worth. We, we see you as a king. We see you as divine. And the third thing was myrrh. Now, myrrh was an embalming solution that was used for a corpse when it was being prepared to be buried. And so somewhere in this, God gave them some insight that this person, Jesus, that they came to ascribe worth to, was going to die. And so they came. And what I want you to see as you identify with this character in the story, unlike Herod, who was trying to protect and prevent, these folks were trying to find and discover. They were active. They were motivated. They wanted to discover the truth. They wanted to give worth. And so what we learn from them is not to play a prevent defense, because that never works, trying not to lose, but trying to win. So what we can learn from this is this idea of this. To, uh, oh, sorry, let's go, let's go to the thing, and we'll come back to that. Here we go. Here, be a seeker. Be a seeker. So let's go back to that last part of the verse. I'm sorry I missed somebody up in the back, and they're mad at me. Here we go. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, because Herod was going to kill all Jesus, right? And they returned to a country by another route. And so what we learned is God was warning them. So what we, what we see in the, in the wise men is this idea of to be active, uh, to be a seeker. To not be passive. That's easier for some people, like, like me, for example. My personality, again, I've said I have ADD real bad, and I do, and, and, and I'm, I'm not passive at all. Although as I get older, I do get more sedimentary. I have an easy chair. Y'all got an easy chair? It's, it's my chair. It's Pappy's chair, okay? And I lean back. This afternoon, I'll be in that chair watching football, watching the Texans lose, and I'll be, uh, <laughs> no, they're going to win. We have a lot of people that go to the Missouri City campus that work for the Texans, and I believe in you. And so, <laughs> they're just going to go find another church is what's going to happen. Anyway, uh, I like that easy chair. I like that comfort place. I want to preserve it, but not the Magi band. They got up out of their own country. They left their comfort zone. They went on a journey. They were seeking the truth. That's, the, I think, the posture God wants us to have, especially at Christmas time when we say, wait a minute, let me get this right. Uh, God predicted 700 plus years before it happened that he was going to come to man and be the savior of the world and provide for us a way for forgiveness. And that we can be redeemed in a relationship eternally with God. In fact, if you're here or Missouri City or West End and you've never really believed that, I'm saying you should believe that. In fact, I'm urging you to believe that. Your soul depends on it. And I know you've got a lot of questions, but you ought to pursue seeking the truth about the answers to those questions. 
You ought to put yourself in a position to say, uh, someday when you face God, you don't want to say, this is not a good answer. Ready? Not a good answer. Uh, I didn't know. Your kids ever say that to you? Like when you're raising teenagers, uh, what was going on? Well, why'd you do that? What was going on? And they look at you and they play dumb. Well, mostly because they are dumb. Okay? So, I mean, it's natural. It's a good thing, you know? They're dumb. And they, well, I didn't know. And one of the best things you can teach your children when they start getting to about fifth grade is uh, your lack of understanding is not my responsibility. Did somebody tweet that out? Because that's good. Your lack of understanding is not my responsibility. You not knowing is not my problem. If you don't know, you should find out. Why are you late? I didn't know what time it started. I cannot be responsible for telling you what time things start. You should ask. You get that? You got that? That's a free parenting tip. I am going to charge you for that, okay? So you're in giving and we need your money, okay? So... And that's kind of what the Magi teaches. Is they didn't know. They wanted to go find. They wanted to discover for themselves. This is a pattern. God gives us the responsibility to discover. So if you're here, or Missouri City, or Ramsey Unit, or West End, and you go, I just don't know about this Jesus. That's your responsibility now. Find out. Discover. Well, I just don't think. Really, why do you think that? You should discover. I'm not saying you're going to come to believe in Jesus, but you should know thoroughly why you don't. And you should say, ah, I don't get all that. What you, most people, quite frankly, react to is a bad experience they've had with a Christian or with a church or with a doofus pastor like me. And they go, well, I don't believe that because of this experience or my parents or this thing that happened. And I'm just saying, no, you, you need to discover for your Self. In fact, this is the pattern, right? Let me just give you this next verse. This next verse says, you will seek me and find me, Jeremiah says, when you seek me with your whole heart. You're going to find me. Hey, listen, here's one thing you should know. God is not hiding. Well, I just don't see him. Open your eyes. You're going to see him. You're going to find him. Not, not personally. That'll make you crazy. But I'm talking, about, I'm talking about, oh my God, God's behind that. I see it. God's real. Like that. Here's another verse I like in Proverbs. It says this. When the, no, no, let's go back. Did I miss a verse? You go back to Proverbs? Matthew, am I making stuff? There it is. Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the I totally messed this up. This comes later. Okay, purpose of the Lord will stand. Sorry, the people in the back hate my guts right now. So anyway, (laughs) what I want you to see, I totally messed that up. I told you I had ADD real bad. God's not hiding. He's in a place. So be a seeker. Be a seeker. You know, here's the first place you should look. Totally messed that up. Be a, uh, you should look in their Bible. That's where you should look. You should look in your Bible. You should say, I just don't know. You should find a Bible. Steal a Bible. We don't prosecute shoplifters. Just just take a Bible from here. I'll give you a Bible. I'll buy you a Bible. Just look. I don't know. Well, it was written down. I mean, this is not the advantage the manager I had. We have an advantage. Wrote it down. It's inspired, you know? So read it. Discover. I just don't know about God. I wrote it down for you. So you cannot use this as an excuse. 
Seek, seek for sure. Here's the third character. It's God himself. When the angel of the Lord, right here, the third thing. So sorry, we've got this so messed up. Uh, that college station thing was out of line. I just want to, I just want to say I'm sorry. I, I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit at this point. I had a son that uh, graduated from that cult, and, uh, and if I hear one more whoop, I'm just out of it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Is there any Aggies here? Oh, jeez. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew I should never have said anything at all. I just, why did I go there? I should have stuck with Hearn. You know, I just, or Bay City. Any Bay City people here? Oh, my God. Ah. Ah. I don't know how I got this job. I really, I don't know. Anyway, go back to the verse. Here we go. So, when the Magi left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Come on, did that really happen? Only if you believe in the supernatural, which I believe God does that kind of stuff, okay? Now, God's never appeared to me like this, but this is a different time. And he said this to Joseph. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for, the, for Herod is a bad man. And Herod is trying to kill you. So Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. And if you read the rest of Matthew, you know that's exactly what he did. In fact, he killed a lot of children. Very disturbing. So what I want you to see in the miracle of the third person of this story that we can connect to but not relate with necessarily is that God is the God of direction. God is the God that's working behind the scenes. It's the miracle of direction. God wants us to move forward like the Magi and not play a prevent defense like the um, Herod. He wants to move us out of our comfort zone. And what I want you to know is this on the third character of the story, God himself, God's working his plan. And nothing, I'm going to use a word, I'm, I don't know if it's right. God, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Is that the way you pronounce that? Thwarted? Thwarted? Is that right? Thwarted. Thwarted. That's not something I use normally, you know? But God's plan can't be stopped. Is that better? Okay, yeah. Can't be. Like, Herod, as evil and wicked as he was, couldn't quit God from being redemptive. God put in his plan to work around the poor choices and bad, evil choices that Herod made. And so he warned. Now, what I also like about God giving direction is he, these astrologers or astronomers coming out of Babylon or what we know as modern day in Iraq, he gave them a sign that they could understand. Star! Now, it wasn't unusual in the first century for men and women to look up at the sky for direction at night, especially as they traveled at night. There's the star. When the sky was clear, they could figure out where's what and which way they should go. God is wanting to give us direction. Maybe it's not with a star, but I'm telling you, it is with the word, with the, with the, with the study. Now, now let's look at these per verses that I preempted and messed up. Psalm 37, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. So he orders your steps, right? Through he may, though he may stumble, like me and you may stumble, 
He will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Now the Proverbs verse that I like. Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know why this is good news? It's because the world seems so out of control and we ask so many times, where is God? When we're hurt especially or lost or, or confused or anxious or depressed. And we want answers. We want God to answer our prayers. We want a miracle and it doesn't happen. And we wonder if God's asleep or worse. We wonder if God cares. We thought, what is the use of this? And what I learned from this Christmas story, even though Mary and Joseph probably didn't see it, in fact, they didn't see it because they were in Bethlehem. And these magi just showed up. And you know what they didn't know? They didn't know, Mary and Joseph didn't know they were coming. You know what else Mary and Joseph didn't know? That they were in danger. And that Herod was out to get them. And God worked all that out to protect them, provide for them, and lead them. You know what that tells me is, I'm not going to mess up God's plan by my stupid choices. I'm not going to be able to, I know most of us, because we're in this information age, feel like we should make all the right choices and not make any mistakes. But I'm telling you, man, God's working around your mistakes. Your mistakes doesn't mess him up. He doesn't go, oh, God was going to do this, but look at Patrick. I can't do that. No, he's taken into account because he knows all. He knows all. He's taken into account every one of us. And so that gives us the courage to move forward. You know, a guy, a friend of mine named Charlie said it this way to me. Because what happens is we have this bad thing, which you don't hear me say much, about waiting on the Lord. And we think that is such a passive experience. I'm just going to wait until the Lord. What we're really saying is, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to wait till God supernaturally tells me or I have a conviction or I read something in the Bible, and then I'm going to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. I'm just saying, that's a terrible strategy. It sounds reasonable, like we should wait on the Lord. You should pray about it, but here's the thing. Charlie told me this. Hey, Patrick, because I was whining one day about this or that, the other thing. He didn't really tolerate my pouting much, you know. So he said, let me tell you something. Come here, come here. And I don't even know if this is right, okay. So I'm going to share with you something you got to figure out for yourself. He said to me, Patrick, come here. Listen, when in doubt, attack. I said, what does that mean? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> figure it out. Attack. Attack. Move. Don't sit there. Wait to get shot at. Attack. In your marriage, you don't know what to do? Attack. With your kids, attack. With your sobriety, attack. With your depression, attack. You're just waiting to get fixed. Ooh, you'll wait a long time. Attack. Move. We're not going to make a mistake. In fact, tell God. He can take it. Say, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm taking off this way, and I'm just going to run this way. Pull four scump on him. Just keep running. <laughs> just keep running and running and running until you can't run anymore. And then all of a sudden you just go, okay, hey, listen, it's a lot easier to redirect a moving object than it is to get a stationary one moving. That's your physics lesson for the day. And so move. I don't know what to do. I'm going to do something. Again, it's a personality thing. My personality is all the mistakes I've ever made in life are because of something I did. Passive people, the mistakes they make are something they didn't do. 
So I like, I like aggressive people. People say, well, what should I do? I don't know. Go out there and tear it up, man. Just get out there and tear. Just run around. Hit somebody, man. Just get, I mean, football. It's a football analogy. I mean, not just hit somebody. Like the Texans should hit somebody. I mean, it's a really. I have screwed this completely up. So this should give us a peace. I'm not going to mess God up. And I'm going to take responsibility for the lack of knowledge. And I'm going to move out. I'm not going to make a mistake beyond God's touch. And I'm going to do something about this. And when you do, something will appear. Probably not a star, but something, a warning, something. And all of a sudden, something happens. A miracle. The miracle of direction. That's what it is. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Missouri City, West End, the Ramsey Unit here at Richmond. We're all struggling, God. We wish you'd just come out and you know, send us some sort of text exactly what we're supposed to be doing, but that wouldn't require any faith, would it? So I just pray, God, that we would stumble forward, that we would understand that you plan our feet and you order our steps, and there's so much going on. If you're here or one of our campuses watching me online, and you've never given your life to Christ because you're waiting for some abstract answer to some crazy question. A good question. Don't wait anymore. Give your life to Jesus. Just say, God, forgive me. I believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my past, present, and future sins. And I want, you, want to follow you, God. I really do want to follow you in my life. I want this relationship. And as you pray and as you do that. I'm telling you, God will answer your questions along the way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.